0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello. My name is Lance Ralston. I'm one of the members of the Enduring Word board, and now I'm uh, also one of the content providers. Uh, David Guzik has invited me to come on board and to uh, share the church history series and some leadership stuff that I'll be doing a little bit later. And David is out of um, uh, his studio today. He's attending a conference. In Real quick. <laughs> this is the fun of... Um, This is the fun of uh, doing something live. Uh, You don't get to do any kind of edits. And so uh, here (laughs) here we are. Okay, so again, the question is, what is a biblical way to respond when being accused of intolerance in the workplace For simply giving a biblical response to a heated topic, even with love and with grace. Um, Carrie, that's a great question, and I think it's really timely. I'm sure that many who are watching this have faced or will face this challenge uh, as we live in an increasingly hostile age. I I think it's important to begin by saying that the time has come when we can expect that being a Christian will mean facing the world's hostility. Uh, Being a Christian, By being a Christian, I mean living out our faith in the public square, at work, at school, and for some of us, probably even in our homes with uh, other family members who don't share our convictions. A little history. Until the 1950s, American society was thoroughly immersed in a Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, The 60s were a time of tremendous social foment that saw that worldview challenged by secular humanism. And then in the 70s and the 80s, we saw what was called the culture wars when those two worlds competed for dominance. By the end of the 90s, it seems that secularism had prevailed, but the Judeo-Christian world was still kind of, well, reluctantly honored. I think, though, the last 20 years has seen that honor dissolve in a simmering hostility that gets really more heated every year. The result is that now there is in many places, and especially in more urban settings, kind of self-righteous intolerance of Christians and their morality that feels perfectly free to publicly mock and shame. Because we're unused to that kind of treatment, Christians I mean, I think many of us don't really know how to deal with it. So it might help to realize that while we're unaccustomed to such hostility, it's really been the case for many of our brothers and sisters in the faith for hundreds of years. In fact, the early centuries of the church saw Christians subjected to all kinds of indignities and ridicule, scorn, worse. The morality of those early believers, it was far different from their pagan neighbors. And in many ways, the immorality of ancient paganism has been you know, kind of resurrected in our time. Their views on the value of life and sexuality have resurfaced. The new morality, as it's called, it isn't new at all. It's just the same as that is of ancient Rome and Greece. The intolerance that we face today from those who are hostile to our faith is delivered in the English language rather than Latin and Greek. The best way to deal with it is to do what those earlier Christians did. Show by the quality of our lives that life in Christ is simply better. That following God's word works best because he made us, he knows how life works. His commands really aren't a burden. On the contrary, they're liberating because they, well, they set us free from the pain and sorrow that all sin inevitably brings. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that as we followed him, we would be salt and light to this fallen world. Now, salt preserves, but it can sting when it's applied to a wound. Light illumines, but it's unwelcome to those that prefer the darkness. Jesus warned us about losing our saltiness and hiding our light by compromising with the world. And that means that some people will react with hostility towards us as we follow Jesus. But how many of us who now love and serve the Lord began as his enemies, kind of smarting at the salt and running from the light. But look at us now. We are salt and light dispensers, showing people the way home. You know, a couple of more quick thoughts on answering the charge that we're intolerant simply for living out our faith in Christ and, and obedience to him and, and the lifestyle and the morality that we find in scripture. And I think we have to be careful how we say this so that it doesn't come off as, you know, combative, but we simply might with a smile ask this question, hey, is it wrong to be intolerant? And when they say, well, yes, it's wrong to be intolerant, then we can ask, well, aren't you being intolerant of my views and my opinion? And so you see, when, when they're accusing us of being intolerant, they have some standard of tolerance that they are expecting from us, but they're not applying it themselves. So again, you got to ask that very carefully uh, and with a smile, but do so and say, but aren't you showing intolerance towards me and, and my opinions? And then there's always pointing out that not agreeing with someone's views doesn't mean that we hate or we disrespect them. We may disagree, but the best course is to humbly stand your ground and say that the love that we're called to in Christ is God's kind of love. Now, he hated our sin. Why? Because he loves us. He hated it because the harm sin does to us and to others. As those charged by God's love and changed by God's love, we aspire to that kind of love. In fact, really, it's a command. And so I think that's uh, some of the ways that we can handle some of the intolerance that we are facing as we simply seek to live out our faith and and our love of Christ. So uh, here's a question. Jackson asks this, was Revelation written before or after 70 AD What evidence do you use to support your conclusion? Also, how would you use scripture to show that preterism is false? Uh, Jackson, that's a great question. Uh, It can get a little complicated. Uh, I remember reading a book years ago. Preterism uh, was a eschatology, a view of the end times that had really pretty much gone by the wayside. Not a lot of people believed in it. Anymore, but there was a very popular author and speaker some years ago that that wrote a book on preterism, and I read it because I really enjoyed him and his other writings. And I read it, and he presented a preterist view. Now, what is preterism? Preterism is the belief that almost all of Bible prophecy, especially the Book of Revelation, um, was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in seventy A.D. And that really, it's only the last, uh, I think, three chapters of Revelation that apply to the future. And so, again, uh, you have the first three chapters, which deal with the church at the time uh, that they were written. And then from chapter four all the way through, I think it's chapter 18. uh, All of that was actually prophetic of the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans and the armies of Titus in 70 AD. And then there's this long gap, uh, th- thousands of years gap between the end of chapter 18, and the beginning of chapter 19, and that looks way out to the end uh, when Christ returns. Um, here's, here's the problem with that view. You take a look at uh, the plagues and all of the judgments that are coming on earth in chapters 4 through 18 and you try to squeeze them into this very limited period of time in the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple uh, in 70 AD and, and now you are, you are having to allegorize these things in Revelation to make them fit the historical events of that time and it simply doesn't work. Um, you, have, you have mass death foretold In those chapters of Revelation, uh, where a a third of the world population is killed off, and then later, a quarter of the world's population is killed off. And if you run the numbers percentage-wise, it turns out from the beginning of the tribulation or the beginning of those judgments to the end of those judgments, fully half of the world's population is killed in in the plagues and in the judgments of God's wrath that are poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. How, how do you account for that kind of loss of life in the destruction, global loss of life, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Rome in 70 AD? It just, it just doesn't fit. But you ask a, a real great question. When was Revelation even written? According to Preterus, Revelation had to have been written before 70 AD if it's prophetic of those events that took place in that year. And yet we know because uh, we find it there in those opening chapters of Revelation where John writes about where he is. He is on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Christ. Historically, we know that John was sentenced to prison on Patmos during the reign of Domitian. And Domitian served from 81 to 96 A.D., so John wasn't even on Patmos till after 70 AD. So Revelation wasn't even written. Why, why write something prophetically of the future when it's in the past? Historically, it simply doesn't make any sense. The only way that you can really account for that is to say that the John who's on the island of Patmos uh, is not the Apostle John that the book of Revelation is attributed to. It would have to be some other John who gets arrested and is also sent to the island of Patmos, but before the apostle John is sentenced there by Domitian. It's it's just too complicated. It doesn't work. Also, again, everything in Revelation chapter 4 through 18 that's prophetic of the future, where we see these, these amazing judgments that are coming on the whole earth, um, it, you have to squeeze them into a very limited period of time of Rome's destruction of Jerusalem. Things like the the, the moon turning to blood, the sun being darkened, the, all the fish of the sea uh, dying, uh, the ships being destroyed. Jerusalem's nowhere near the water. How do, how do you count for all of these things? Preterism simply does not fit the clear meaning of the text in revelation. So I think preterism really is, it's just, it's not tenable. It just requires us to apply a completely different hermeneutic, a way of interpreting scripture for revelation we do for the rest of scripture. All right. Uh, Here's another, let's see. Tara asks, good afternoon. Can anyone baptize someone on their deathbed? It's always been my understanding that full immersion is necessary with a solid confession of faith in Christ's death on the cross. Uh, Tara, this is a, a again another good question. Uh, it's important that we understand that baptism is a way that believers throughout the centuries have used to make a public confession of their faith. It's an opportunity for people to, through actions, give evidence for an internal change that's happened. Baptism in itself doesn't affect anything. It's a way that the Bible prescribes for those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ to make a public confession of that. And and the ideal form of that then is in the identification with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And that is why using water is such a great picture of that. By going under the water, it's symbolic of our identification with his death on the cross, being buried, and then coming out of the water, a picture of our rising again with him as he rose to come and live within us and to give us new life. And, and so in uh, the book of Acts, we see on that first day of Pentecost as Peter is preaching and the people are convicted and they say, what should we do? And he says, he says, repent and be baptized. So there's, a, there's this repent of your rejection of Christ and now be baptized uh, in, in giving public expression of your faith because they had just said, what should we do? There's the evidence that they have come to faith. They are, in fact, born again at that point. And Peter is saying, okay, here's a way that you can give expression to that. Identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection. There's some church history here where (laughs) there was a question on the legitimacy of who had the right or who had the authority to baptize. Um, I don't want to get into that now. It's part of the church history series that I'm doing here on uh, the Enduring Word uh, YouTube channel. I uh, would encourage those of you that uh, w- are interested in church history, you can get started. We're really just, I think, up to uh, episode seven uh, we'll post tomorrow. And so uh, pretty soon we're going to be dealing with this issue in church history. Are, are, are the baptisms done by a church leader who then turns away from the Lord um, are those baptisms legitimate since he, you know, became a heretic or he turned away or he fell away from the Lord? And the answer of the church has been throughout history, uh, yes, they're legitimate because it isn't the person that's performing the rite, it's the faith of the person being baptized that matters. Again, baptism is is simply a way to give expression to the inner reality of our, our having come to faith in Christ. So can can someone... Can, can just anybody, the question is that Tara asked, can just anybody baptize somebody on their deathbed? If someone comes to faith in Christ on their deathbed, it's unlikely they can be immersed. If if what they do is say, hey, listen, can you sprinkle some water on me? Because this is, this is the closest I can get to immersion. That's fine. Even really to say publicly with your mouth, I confess my sins. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose again for my justification and new life. Really, it's that public profession, the way that we express that we have come to faith in Christ and that we are trusting in him for salvation. That's the critical issue. Again, historically, the church has used baptism as a way to give people an opportunity to do that and to make a statement publicly to God, Uh, To Satan, who no longer has dominion over us when we come to faith in Christ uh, and to the world and to the body of Christ. Listen, I'm 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 joining Christ now in faith. I believe in him. I trust in him for my salvation. So that's really the the purpose of of baptism. Let's not get hung up on the details of it. Again, it's more uh, the reality of the person who's being uh, baptized and, and their faith in Christ. Mariska, Um, hi, greetings from South Africa. Hi, Mariska, good to see you. Uh, I'm asking for your advice or your guidance regarding Ash Wednesday. I have heard that it had its origin as a pagan ritual, so is it appropriate for Christians to adopt it? So here we are. We are in the season of Lent. It begins with Ash Wednesday uh, and it concludes with uh, the Passion of Christ on Good Friday and then, of course, his resurrection on Sunday. Traditionally, Lent was a period of 40 days that were set apart in preparation for Easter. Uh, There's a little history here, and we try to go over this rather quickly so we can get to more questions. If you look to the New Testament, you look to the book of Acts, it seems that the earliest church um, wanted people to be baptized the the moment that they came to faith. We see that on the day of Pentecost, right? Again, referred to it earlier, Peter preaches. The people say, which which should we do? And his response is repent and turn from your rejection of Christ, which is what the Jews had been doing, and and be baptized in the name of the Father. So in the Son, the Holy Spirit. Because that was the way to publicly express turning from rejection of Christ to faith in him. Okay. So notice that Peter calls them to do it right then. And they did. They went from the temple courtyard where he had been preaching uh, and they found water and they they did baptisms right then. A little bit later in Acts, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Philip is sharing with him. They're in the chariot there. Uh, The the Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel, comes to faith in Christ. They uh, stop the chariot and and Philip says, look, there's water right here. Let's be baptized. And so he, he goes right into baptism right there. That seems to be the New Testament pattern. It was the way as closely to the moment of coming to faith in Christ as possible to baptize people. Then something happened, and we, we see a hint of this in James's letter, uh, in the letter of James, probably the earliest writing in the New Testament, written right about 45 AD, so just about a dozen years after Christ. And James's theme through his entire letter is the ne- necessity that we live out what we believe. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he's already noticing that there's um, <laughs> some slippage between what what Christians say and what they do. They 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 talk, but they don't walk. And he's saying you need to align those things. What you say you believe needs to be carried into action in your lives. First of all, in your speech, and then the way you treat others. And so, um, we and of course we look to some of the letters of Paul as well and dealing with some of the churches that they weren't living out their faith. They were making great claims to faith. The Corinthian church is a great example, very charismatic church, but it lacked love. It lacked patience. There was factions there. They were fighting with each other within the church. And so uh, what the church began to do is they began to say, listen, um, baptism is really important. I think actually they, they began to put too much emphasis on baptism. They they made it more than it was intended to be. And they, they began to develop this idea that when you were baptized, you were forgiven all sins up to that point. But then after that, your relationship to sin was different. And there were some sins that if you committed them after baptism, You might be able to be forgiven by God, but the church couldn't forgive them. And so you were removed from fellowship. And so in order to keep Christians from being baptized too quickly where they hadn't been discipled enough yet and put away the sins of their past and then might get baptized and commit those sins and so be, uh, you know, rejected from fellowship. They began saying, listen, let's not baptize people immediately. Let's put them through a course of discipleship and Christian growth, and let's save up all the baptisms and do them once a year at the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. We call it Easter. Of course, that's a pagan term, but that's what we refer to it as, the celebration of Christ's resurrection. And so they said, okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to catechize these people. We're going to put them through uh, discipleship classes. If you we're going to make sure that they grow and that they really have been converted. And we'll see that in change in their speech and the change in their behavior. And then as kind of the, the last phase of that training before they're baptized, we'll put them through this period of 40 days where they will fast, not fast, you know, the whole 40 days, but like fast meals fast, like the daylight hours or, um, eat only very limited diet for that 40 days. And that was called Lent. And it was a way for these baptism candidates to prepare themselves for, um, you know, the solemnity of being baptized and now identified with Christ, uh, in his death and his resurrection. And so that's what Lent was. It was a preparation for this time. Um, the, the then the process began to be well if if these baptism candidates are going to do that, why don't why don't why doesn't the whole church join them in that? Well it kind of encourage them and so now it, all the Christians are doing it and it becomes this uh, another ritual um, that takes on this idea of I'm giving something up. see how holy I am because I've given up, eating during the daylight hours, or I've given up eating lunch or, and and now it's just become this thing that's become this, what's the purpose of it today? Um, People will say, I'm going to celebrate Lent. I'm going to give up something, Um, you know, whatever it is, food, or I'm going to give up uh, Facebook. (laughs) I'm going to give up Email. I'm going to give up texting. I'm going to give up TikTok. Uh, people think by giving up these things, um, it's it's helping kind of advance their spiritual growth and discipline. And it may very well do that. That's wonderful. But anytime Lent is used in giving something up so that we can prove to God how devoted we are, try to earn points with Him, it's completely out of bounds and it's totally inappropriate. So, I hope that helps. All right. Is there any... Okay, well, I'm sorry. Mari asks, Hello from Denmark, Pastor Lance. Hey, Mari. How to teach my eight and six-year-olds that marriage, according to God, is between man and woman, while at school they have friends whose parents are either two two moms or two dads. Well, wow. uh, teaching this to an eight and a six year old <laughs> could be both difficult or simple because eight and six year olds um, I think actually can perceive things pretty clearly how do we as Christians teach our children the principles and the ways of God in a culture which has not just ignored them, but is intentionally pushing back against them. We, we began with that question today, this issue of intolerance. Well, I think, Mari, the best way to do this is to simply take your children to the Bible where it shows them the very first marriage and just walk them through the story and help them to understand that, Here is God. He creates man, and then he creates the woman to be his companion, his completer, if you will. And God sanctions that relationship. He orders it. It was part of his will. It was good. There's no sin. And then that becomes the template for humanity, for the human race. This is God's plan. He says they shall become one. The world, then, is introduced in chapter 3, where humanity turns away from God and wants to go its own way and come up with its own rules. Remember what Satan said in appealing to Eve. You don't need to listen to God. You can can be your own God. Just do what he says not to do, and go your own way, and make your own choices. And the result was the curse. The result is the world that we know, broken, broken. Filled with sorrow, grief, poverty, hunger, sickness, death. The world we live in is the result of Adam and Eve's turning away from God. They enjoyed paradise. And simply to share with your kids, um, God had a better plan, but, but but he gave the power of choice to humanity. And we took that power, we took that choice, and we turned away from him. Life works better when we go his way. And God's word is very clear. We see it right there in the very opening chapters of the Bible. God intends marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. If we follow that plan, and then that husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, Ephesians chapter 5, and the wife honors and respects her husband as the church does the Lord, they have a beautiful relationship. But... We can't expect a fallen, rebellious world to live by those rules. They've already rejected them. And so the world will do its thing while we are called to do the Lord's thing. I think that you explain it simply that way to your children. They will understand. And then to say, hey, listen, you're you're going to be meeting people that are going to be in these marriages that are not biblical. And we don't need to be judgmental towards them. Um, God wants all people to uh, be saved and to know him. And the best way to share that, the best way to be an example of that is to love them and to respect them as human beings and to show them how the life that we have in Christ is so much better than the life that the world is engineering and promoting. All right. Laura asks, hi, I work in an office where I do things that I know are not right to do. I'm sorry, Laura, that, that, that's tough. It is part of my job. My boss is a Jew and says that he has a fear of God and thinks that he does what is the right thing to do, but it does not sit right with me and they do not know what to do. How should I proceed as a Christian? Laura, that is such a great question. And and again, I think something that so many who are watching this, listening to this can relate to. How how do we go to work and, and have a boss that is telling us to do something, and we know that they're in authority, we're under their authority, we're supposed to do what they say, but what they are requiring of us, uh, of us is, in fact, contrary to what we know is the will of God. So, Lord, Lord me, let me just clarify here. Be sure that what you are reacting to or responding to is, in fact, not God's will, that it is sin. Be clear on that first, not just something you don't want to do, but something really you ought not do because, <laughs> you know, that to do it would would dishonor the Lord. Like, you know, to cheat or to steal or to fudge numbers, that kind of thing. We're not to do that. That's dishonest. That's that's a form of lying. And that is certainly not of not of God. So uh, here is a way that you you may be able to respond. And I and I have to say I have to you know preface this by by warning that. Taking this course of action may get you in trouble with your boss. It may. It may result in you losing your job. But you have to ask who are you going to honor? Are you going to honor the Lord or are you going to honor your boss? I think we're, we all would answer that we have to honor the Lord. Um, I have done this personally and I have talked with other Christians that have done this, and generally it works pretty well. When your boss asks you to do something that you can't because it's sin, you very carefully say, I, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. And I can't do it because it would violate my conscience. I, I, I simply can't do this. I can't lie. I can't cheat. And, and to let then your supervisor, your boss, your manager know, go on and say, It's best that I don't, it's best for you that I don't. I know that if I were to fudge these figures or lie to this customer, that it would get us out of trouble right now, but that stuff always gets found out and it creates more problems later. Number one. And number two, if I do this for you now, how do you know I won't do it against you later? if I lie for you, if I fudge these numbers for you, now, how do you know? How do you how do you have any confidence that I won't do it when it's going to harm you? I, integrity doesn't allow me to do this. You need to be able to trust in my serving of you, in my employment, in the work that I do. But if I do this now for you, You won't have any confidence that I won't do it against you later. And listen, there have been, I've heard of some bosses that that reacted to that in the moment. Like, no, you know, you just need to do this. And after a while, sometimes hours, sometimes days, came back later and said, you know what? Thank you. (laughs) Because I thought about what you said and I didn't like it in the moment. And yeah, this is going to maybe cause us some trouble now, but it's honest trouble. But now I know I can trust you. I don't have to be looking over my shoulder at the work that you're doing because you've shown yourself to be a person of integrity. And again, that goes then to your testimony and proves to them that you are living by a higher standard than just their requirements of you. You're living by principles um, that cannot be violated. So um, I, I realize this puts us in a difficult place, but... This is what it means to live for God in a fallen world. There are going to be times when the world is not going to like what we do in the moment, but so often then come back later and say, your way's better. Your life is, is lived by higher principles that I realize are attractive and, and I need that. Eliza, question, Pastor Lance, how do we know if we hear from the Holy Spirit or hear from God, or it's just our own mind or reasoning? For example, some people easily always say, God told me, or God said this. (laughs) Like in every conversation, how can we discern that we are truly hearing from the Lord? Thanks. Eliza... I love this question, and I didn't know it was—I co- didn't know it was coming. And I'm so thankful that you asked this question. You know, it's funny because uh, David and Chuck and Miles and I here on the Enduring Word Q&A on Thursdays—we we read these questions, and so often we'll respond immediately by saying, "Oh, such a great question!" <laughs> that is a great question, and it's one um, uh, I think is so good because we we've all faced this. Um, how do we know the Spirit is really speaking to us? I, I see two things here, two, two kind of ways we're going to take this. First of all, subjectively, how do we know the Lord is leading us? And then, and then second, what about people that are always saying the Lord said or the Lord told me? So let me, deal with those. let me deal with those separately. How do we know the Lord is leading us? No one, I don't think, can tell another some kind of formula for discerning that. And the reason why is because it's deeply personal and gets to the very essence of what it means to be in relationship with God. You know, we often say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And we can become a bit trite on that. But man, that is a powerful truth. Our relationship with God is, in fact, Christianity is a religion, let's be honest. It's a way of relating to God and him relating to us. But it is a religion that is primarily about a relationship, a relationship that was broken through sin. And has been restored by Christ. Our relationship with God is based on primarily his word revealed in the Bible. So that's where we start. God will never tell one of his people to do something that is a violation of what he's already said. Because God does not contradict himself. And so a good way for us to check whether or not we are truly hearing from God is, does this align with what we find in God's word? But we all know the reality that not every decision that we make, including some of the big decisions of life, you know, are spelled out in black and white in scripture. There are certain decisions, certainly basic principles in God's word that we know, okay, listen, it's clear I can't do this or I should do that. The rest of the decisions that we make are more kind of a, um, what's the Lord telling me to do in this situation? Uh, You're in a conversation with someone and the question arises, should I speak up or should I be silent? It's very subjective. How do we know? Well, you are in communication with the Lord. You are in, remember, it says, you know, pray without ceasing. It means that we should always, we should be living within the attitude that we are right now in the presence of God. He's hearing us and we are listening to him. I think that that comes with more time actually being a Christian, walking in the spirit. The more time that we have spent being led by the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, the more aware we are of <laughs> what that feels like, if you will. I know that I'm, oh, I know that I'm listening to the Lord, or no, I, I, I'm really not listening to the Lord. We all have that subjective experience of that. And that's why I say no one can tell, no Christian can tell another Christian some formula for that, because it's deeply relational. If I could use a quick illustration here, every marriage is different. My relationship with my wife is called marriage. I'm a husband, she's a wife. We have this relationship where we are becoming one. I can explain technically what marriage is to somebody else, but I don't know what their relationship is with their spouse. That's unique to them. I know my marriage, I don't know their marriage. Does that make sense? I know my relationship with God, but Eliza, I don't know your relationship with God, but you do. And you know when the Lord is leading you. You know when his spirit is speaking to you. How do you know that? Because you know it. (laughs) It's just part of who you are and who God is in that relationship with you. you. You know when he's leading you and you make a decision and, and, it, and things happen the way they're supposed to. You also know what it's like to have your own flesh masquerade as that and you make the decision and it doesn't work out. You know that. There is this wonderful principle that we read about in Philippians chapter four, where Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through supplication coupled with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. But in everything, again, be in that place of prayer. And as you're praying, Lord, do, is it A or B? Is Do I go to the left? Do I go to the right? Do I speak up or do I be quiet? Look for the peace. Look for where your heart is leaning in towards peace, like, like a compass points towards north. Just where for you in that moment does the most peace lie? Now, in some decisions we make, there's no peace. It's like, you know, either decision that we make, we see complications with or maybe challenges in. So where's the, where's the least amount of that? In other words, the, the, the most relative peace. You let, your, let your heart lead you that way. Why? Because the Lord has given you a new heart. Uh, you know, we read, well, the heart is deceitful and wicked and who can know it? Yes, but God has given us a new heart and it's being reformed. It's being renewed. Our minds are being renewed by God's word. So look, look for where the peace is and let that be the one that, that guides your decision and the Lord will then guide you that way. Again, you each of us who are listening to this, this is something that we all learn as we walk in the spirit. That's the key. Walking in the walking in the spirit means being led by the Lord. We're walking, he's leading our steps. And no Christian can give a formula to another Christian for how to do that. It can't be reduced to that because a real relationship isn't a formula. It's not a ritual. It's a living, dynamic interaction of two persons, okay? The other part of that is what about these people that are always saying the Lord told me? As a pastor, and I can say this on behalf of David and uh, Miles and Chuck, the other board members, we're all pastors, and we have lots of people that come to us for counsel, and they will come in, and they will sit down, and they will talk about some situation And inevitably, some of them will say something along the lines of, well, you know, I've been praying about this and the Lord told me. And then they'll go on to say what they believe the Lord has told them. I will, when a person says that, I will oftentimes just sort of sit back and be quiet and let them finish speaking and then look at them and say, then why did you feel the need to have to come talk to me? Because... (laughs) If the Lord has told you to do something, if the Lord has spoken to you, why are you coming to me? He's already spoken. He's already told you what to do. So often people will throw that down like a trump card. Uh, well, the Lord told me. And, and, I mean, it, Well, if the Lord has spoken, it's the end of the conversation. It's the end of the discussion. God has spoken. Too often people will play that trump card Because they want permission to do something their flesh is pressing. It isn't, it isn't in fact what the Lord has said. And really the only way to refute that because being led by the Lord and the Lord leading us is so personal. The only way that we can really um, show the error of that is by then saying, how does that square with God's word? Show me how what you're saying the Lord told you to do is, in fact, supported by what God's word says. It's in principle or in direct command. And so often, of course, the reason people are playing that trump card is because it's contrary to what God's word has said. And it's contrary to the, the, the counsel of trusted spiritual advisors and mature believers uh, saying, I just no, I don't think that that's right whatsoever, but it's a direction they want to go. And you know, so they play that trump card. And at that point, I think that it's probably wise for people to just back up and just say, well, if that if the Lord has spoken, wow, if he's really spoken, you need to you need to do what the Lord has said. Uh, and, and and then face people with a reality that uh, may, maybe you're just saying that because it's what you want to do and you're putting your will in God's mouth. Yeah. All right. George asks, Must a believer speak in tongues? Is tongues the only evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit? Uh, must a believer speak in tongues, George? No. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter... Uh, 12. We read about the manifestations of the spirit. One of them is speaking in tongues, interpretation, knowledge, wisdom, gifts of healings. They're called manifestations of the spirit there because that word manifestation refers to something seen. It's an outworking. It's something that becomes visible. And so these Gifts of the Spirit are called manifestations of the Spirit because it's obvious when they're in operation that this is superhuman. There's a divine agency that's involved here. And speaking in tongues, of course, would be would be one of those, as would be interpretation and healing and the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom, the word of wisdom and discerning of spirits and so on. So there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul asks the question rhetorically. It's a rhetorical question. Do all speak in tongues? do all um, uh, interpret, do all heal. I don't think he says heal there, but it, 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 it's a series of those do all. And the reason why is because the chapter had begun by talking about how the spirit gives the manifestations of the spirit individually as God wills. The the point there is that not everybody has these gifts. So when he asks the question rhetorically at the end of chapter 12, do all speak in tongues? The expected answer from his readers is no. So no, not all believers have to speak in tongues and speaking in tongues is not the sign or a sign of being born again. It's a manifestation of the spirit that is given to some believers for the purposes that the Holy Spirit has decided. Now, um, there is a branch of Christianity that believes that all believers should speak in tongues, and I'll explain why in just a moment, and uh, that if a person does not speak in tongues, it is a sign they're not born again because of the prior belief that all believers should speak in tongues. You see? Now, what's their basis for that? It is in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, all the believers are gathered together. They are seeking the Lord. They are waiting for what Jesus had promised 10 days before on the day that he ascended into heaven. That was the 40th day after the resurrection, Pentecost was 50 days after uh, Easter, after Passover. So about 10 days after Jesus ascended, you'll remember his last words right before he went up from the Mount of Olives. He said, now wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. There they are. they're, They're gathered. They're doing what he said. They're waiting. They're seeking the Lord. They're worshiping. And the Holy Spirit comes. They hear the sound of a rushing wind that fills the place where they are. There's this visible evidence of something over their heads that looked like uh, flames of fire. And they all speak in other languages. And and what do they do when they're speaking these other languages? It says they're declaring the glories of God. They're declaring the glories of God. They're not preaching. They're declaring the glories of God. All right. All of them, at least, it appears that they were speaking in tongues. And so this idea that all believers should speak in tongues is drawn from that. That passage is descriptive of a historical event. It is not prescriptive for the practice of the church. You see the difference? We can't say, we can't draw doctrine from the relating of a historical event. Well, wait a minute, Lance, the book of Acts says, Acts chapter two says that they all spoke with other tongues, right? Because it had been foretold in the old Testament that this would be the evidence of the ministry of the Messiah. This was one of the many things that had been given prophetically that, that, that messianic age had begun, that people would speak and they would glorify God in other tongues, So, this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Does that then mean that all believers should speak in tongues? Well, no, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, he asked the question, do all speak in tongues? The expected answer is no. They all did on the day of Pentecost because it was the fulfillment of a prophecy of the commencement of the messianic age. You follow? Speaking in tongues, the gift of tongues, is something for individuals. It is not for everybody. Paul regulates and explains what tongues are for in 1 Corinthians 14. So two chapters after chapter 12, he compares tongues to prophecy, And and he makes very clear there that that while prophecy is from God to us, tongues are from us to God. So it it is a way for us to express worship, praise, and prayer to God in a language that bypasses our understanding. It's very clear that it's meant to bypass our understanding. He's, he speaks mystery. Paul says, the one who speaks tongues speaks mysteries. He doesn't understand. And that's why the gift of interpretation is given, so that we might understand. I, I hope this is clear. We're covering a lot of ground here. So, bottom line question, was, bottom line answer is this. Must a believer speak in tongues? No. 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, is tongues the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? No. The baptism baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by what what did Jesus say would be the, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You shall receive power to be witnesses to me. A changed life. The evidence that Jesus said of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which he told them, remember, now wait for it. And it happened 10 days later. The evidence was that We become witnesses of Christ. Witnesses how? Well, what's our message? That Jesus Christ died and rose again to live in us. He's not dead. In other words, you want to know Christ is alive? Look at my life. Look at the change. Listen to my words. Notice how Christ has cleaned up my vocabulary and, and altered my speech. Not just so that I don't use profanity, but I use it to bless rather than curse. Watch my life, how I treat others. Notice the difference. I used to be selfish. It used to be all about me. But now that Christ has come, now it's about love. It's about serving. It's about being careful, respectful, recognizing the the dignity of others, seeing the image of God in them, and loving them into the truth, which is in Christ. That's the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All right, Dr. K asks, Can you clear up this argument between salvation requires only belief and the claim that, quote, nowhere did Jesus say repent from sins? I have heard this in some places online, and I'm tired of certain YouTubers minimizing sin and turning away from sin. Okay, so I I think I understand this. Um, Can you clear up the argument between salvation requires only belief and the claim that nowhere Did Jesus say, repent from your sins? Well, um, we may not find in the Gospels that, that Jesus said the words, repent from your sins. Because most carefully, the repentance. Wow. Let me just back up. When, when we repent, what, do, what are we repenting from? Primarily, in terms of a person who is lost, who, who are we repent, what are we repenting from? We aren't repenting from sins, plural. We are repenting from a sin, a specific sin, unbelief in Christ. He's the ground of all forgiveness. Sin ends with him. So the unbeliever comes to faith in Christ by first repenting of a sin, the sin of rejecting Christ, of ignoring him, of saying, I'm not interested. That's the sin they are repenting of. So Jesus may not have said, repent in the gospels, repent of of sin because he's there. If they came to faith in him, they would be repenting of their unbelief in Christ So believing in Christ requires repenting of our unbelief in him. We can't come to belief apart from repenting. It's all one package. It's not either or. It's not simply believing. This is what James is so careful to make clear in his letter. That faith in Christ leads to a change in our behavior. Faith does stuff. It produces actions. His way that he states is his faith without works is dead. It's a dead faith. It doesn't do anything. Real faith does stuff. It results in change. Now, Jesus Jesus did say repent. He said it five times in the book of Revelation. Think of this. (laughs) Jesus wrote through John, Letters to seven churches, five of them were to churches that had gone off the rails. One of them, the very first letter to, to the church at Ephesus, this was a great church. This was a busy church. This was a faithful church. And yet Jesus, Jesus says, yet I have this against you that you have left your first love. Repent, therefore, They'd simply lost passion for Christ himself. The thing we were talking about earlier, that intimate personal relationship. And Jesus says, you got to repent of that. You got to repent of that. And then he goes on to the other churches and they, they seem to get progressively worse. Have you notice that in those, le- those letters? Ephesus, you've just left your first love. By the time you get to Laodicea, the seventh church, these are people who are religious and, and Jesus isn't even in their church. In the first church, Ephesus, he, he threatens to take away their, their candlestick. Their, that, that is their, their symbol of being a church. In, in the last church, he's left their church. He's outside knocking on the door saying, if anyone hears me and opens up, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. <laughs> this is a church where Christ is left. What does he say to them? Repent. Repent. Five of the seven churches, two of them, don't need to repent because they were doing well. He commends them, Smyrna, Philadelphia. But the other five churches, he says to them, repent. And, and who does he say it to? To believers, ostensibly believers. People go into church and he tells them to repent. So this idea that all we have to do is believe, no, we must Genuine belief, real belief, James makes very clear, does stuff. It turns from sin, specifically a sin of rejecting Christ, and puts complete trust in Him. So repentance is a part of the Christian life. We repent initially of the rejection of Christ. We put our trust in him and then repent of the individual shortcomings and failures that his spirit reveals to us as we walk with him. All right. And now listen, here's our, our last question. Gamut asks, hello, I am from India. And my question is, do I have to be baptized to take communion? No. Again, going back to what we looked at earlier, baptism is a thing that the church has used as a way to give people an opportunity to make a public profession of faith. It's that public profession of faith that's important. And and you can do that apart from baptism. You can do it by publicly declaring to people with with your words. Remember, you say with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ is risen and you are saved. Romans chapter 10. But baptism is a great way. It's a biblical way to show our identification with Christ. We go under the water, identifying with his death and burial. We come out of the water, uh, recognizing that we are uniting with him in his resurrection. But do you have to uh, celebrate? uh, Do you have to uh, submit to baptism in order to partake of communion? No. Uh, What's important in this taking of communion is that You have given your life to Christ, that you have repented of your unbelief in Him, you have put your trust and confidence in Him as your Savior, that you really believe that when He died on that cross, He died for you, not just for sins in general, but for your sins, and that when He rose again from the dead, He rose with the power to give you new life. If you've done that, if you believe that, you can partake of communion. Now, listen, there are some church traditions that it's their rules. It's the way they go about conducting their uh, life of faith that, you know, you have to be baptized before you can take communion. That's their rules. And if you want to be a part of that group, you know what? You should probably go along with their rules. Sometimes in in being a part of a church, we may not agree with every little nuance of the way that they parse and they do things, but we want to be part of a community of faith. That's where we believe the Lord is leading us. And so it's best to just lean into those things and kind of, you know, say, okay, listen, this is the group I want to be a part of. This is what they do. I have my belief. I'm not going to be contentious about this. I'm not going to raise uh, you know, a problem about this. It's best just to quietly consent to the forms that they have, because I believe the Lord is calling me to be a part of this uh, family of Christ. All right. So that's it for today. Let the last question. Um, I just wanted to say this is a challenge, doing a live Q&A like this. There's technology involved that we have to make sure work, and it's easy to get distracted by that. I had to do that. I had left my um, little trackpad over there earlier, and I needed to go get it. So <laughs> sorry about that. There's just so many little things that can go wrong, and you can't edit it out. But what's especially challenging is you never know what questions you're going to get and if you're going to have the answers for them. So David does this week after week after week. And uh, you know, I just say kudos to him. It, it's a, it can be a challenge. And he always does such a great job answering questions, as do both Miles and Chuck when they're on as well. I'm kind of low man on the, on the poll here for that. But uh, trust that I'll get more proficient at it as uh, time goes by. All right, Lord bless you, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.